we'll see what happens. Oh, surprises. Waiting for us to actually go live on YouTube here. I just got the notification. Wait, whose shirt says IBUs don't matter? Which one of you is wearing that shirt? IBUs don't matter. That's my shirt. It's <laughs> not a real shirt yet, but it will be. You, it will be. That's did Jake. you read my my article? Is that why you're wearing that shirt? Is that <laughs> actually I haven't read your article, uh, but we've said it for years on the show. <laughs> I think it was a season one guest uh, when Jake was a was a guest with us Sorry. before he was on full time season two. He said it season one. Because of uh, because of Google's magic and SEO, um, my page on international bitterness units uh, is probably like a top your top hit on Google if you search it. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm serious. Search like IBU beer. I'm pretty sure mine's number one. Um, and because of that, I get an insane amount of traffic to that page, like thousands of hits every day to that page, and. It basically talks about the history of IBUs, and I couldn't possibly, possibly agree with that shirt more. <laughs> well, okay. Awesome. I'm going to run the intro here. We're going to talk about that because I did a poll on Twitter. Yes. I got some feedback on it. I was surprised. By it. But before I run that, let's Wait, I just Is it the one that says, have you ever heard about IBUs and beers? Yeah. Before, but what is an IBU? Okay. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, now I got some reading to do. Hey, can right. you open the bottle opener? Can, can I hit the button here? Can we roll the beautiful bean footage? Oh, Why aren't you already rolling it's this good footage. stuff? We're the three best friends. Who tells the wrong one? How about this one? <laughs> hey, pass me a beer. I Look, at least promise me you won't drink. Alcohol always leads to trouble. Hey, who wants to play drink the beer? Right here. <laughs> you win. All right. What do I win? Another beer. Just have a cup of coffee. There it is. Coffee. Beer. I kill for a beer. <gasps> Cheap beer and a sympathetic ear. Step right up. Ooh, what's up, everybody? It's uh, I hit the wrong button. See, I don't like the stuff already. I don't like it already. My goodness. <laughs> you were doing so good earlier. I know. Uh, it's the Beard Ops podcast, and uh, thanks for joining us. And stuff is just not working right now. Are we not recording? No, we're recording. But yeah, it's, it's live. It's live. Is this screen because I can't get it to go away. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's not uh, part of the plan. That's <laughs> not part of the plan. Oh hey, there it is. Podcast, and this is the start of season number three. Woohoo! Big joyous claps. Yay! Uh, of course, I always have the two ugly mugs with me. We've got Chad. Hi, Chad. Ugly mug. Come on, man. Look at that thing. Doesn't yeah. get worse. Chad has been working on the offseason here to change the look of his studio. I know. Yeah, no more black, just blacked out background. I had no to, more floating head. Floating head. No more floating head. Yeah. Yeah, no more randomly moving curtains in the background. <laughs> uh, Jake took a shower, so he actually smells fine today. How you doing, Jake? Oh, that was last night, but thanks for noticing. Ah, shower last night. I'm doing great. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be back. You know, I thought I wanted a break, and then we went on break, and I was like, Damn it, I missed podcasting. You did come over and ask, uh, can we podcast again? I did. So. And, of course, we do have a uh, little studio arrangement. Rearrange things a little bit. Adam's been working in here as well. I uh, will credit my wife and not credit myself. So, Well, you were, you know, managing. <laughs> yeah, I was managing stuff. So, hey, Chad, your turn. Hey, what's, what's going on? What am I supposed to say? Like, what am I pouring? No, we're supposed specialty. to introduce the guest. Man. Oh well, it's uh, it's been like more, Isn't this about the beer, not not the guest? 
Not really. I'm, I'm kidding, Christopher. Uh, <laughs> tonight, uh, we have uh, Chris. Is it Chris or Christopher? Just just Chris is good. Just, I mean, my just Chris. Christopher, my mom calls me Christopher. <laughs> all, right, all right. All right. So we have Chris McClellan, right? Yep. Yep. Last name correct. Chris yep. McClellan. Correct. Yep. Uh, from the Brew Enthusiast, um, like a social conglomerate sort of website. Um, we're going to unpack this tonight. Sure. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Good to uh, be talking with some. Is everyone a Midwesterner on this podcast? Besides, yeah. yes, we all are. I love Midwesterners. I love you guys so much. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> uh, we are. Jake lives across the street. We're in Illinois. <laughs> I shoot people say like that. Uh, and then he's a cheddar cheddarhead. He's up in Wisconsin. So I yeah, can see some Milwaukee area. I see a little pack. See a little pack yeah. up in the background there. So. Yeah, we best discussed. We, I'm blocking the best hat of the of the shot here. Yeah, right there. Sorry, you can keep that ugly shit back there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now Chad, you can do your other part, which you always do. Uh, what's oh my God, that? Two week, what are you drinking? Oh my so, God! <laughs> I'm, kidding. Over, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, the beer enthusiast founder, obviously. Advanced. I always butcher this word. Uh, Cicero. Cicero. That's what I thought. I thought I was doing my part. Beer well, writer. He took over. You strategist, too. photographer, consultant. I don't know if we'll have time. All right. Time All right. Jake, get into this a little bit. Sandwich connoisseur. I would love Ooh, some sandwich nice. expertise, advice, recommendations from you. And he's and quite tall. Quite tall. How tall are you? Uh, I'm 6'7. Yep. Oh, yep. Jesus Christ, yeah. man. Okay. okay. Hold on. Hold on. Quite tall. I'd say hold on. Hold on. Oh, my God. All right. I'm taking over. What's everybody drinking? I have. Oh, he remembered. Finally. I was joking when I said, what are we doing? It's been a, a short break. Roll. I'm just going to break. I'm just going to. You got it. Ruin. I am drinking 2019 Three Sheeps, The Wolf. You see, they changed their labeling. Yeah, it doesn't have that cool feel to it anymore. I actually like the new label. I like Three Sheeps. It's good. Yeah. You like the new label? You don't like the whole sandpaper stuff? I liked it. I, I guess I like both, but I'm a fan of. Uh, just because of what I do for a living, I guess I'm a fan of of clean, approachable branding in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Uh, Jake, what are you uh, gulping? Uh, I just want to say, Chad, yeah. I almost brought a wolf over. I'm a little jealous. Uh, for Ooh. anybody that has access to that beer, you're looking at a uh, four four <laughs> for what fifteen bucks. Yep, fantastic price. Yeah, great, great deal. Um, I, this is just one I stole from my brother when I was in Michigan in July. Deschutes. Uh, uh, Summer Ale, Twilight. I don't know. It says limited release. I haven't had it before. It's okay. Light, crisp. I don't know. Just took a first sip. <laughs> just took a first sip. Yeah, just, you know, got to warm it up, stretch out here before we dig into something a little bit stronger. <laughs> Chris, what are you doing? Uh, right now, I'm actually, I was just, a, I grew up in Vermont and I was I was just in Vermont this past week. So I'm drinking a, uh, a Scrag Mountain Pills from Lawson's Finest Liquids, uh, which is their new Pilsner. So Lawson's is famous for making a beer called Sip of Sunshine, which is a famous double IPA they make. Mm. I love the name of the brewery. Lawson, Lawson's Famous Liquids, is that what you said? Lawson's Finest Liquids. Lawson's fine. That's, that's a cool name. Is it, uh, beer? What's that? Are there any other liquids they do besides beer? They, they're a brewery, man. They, they make beer. It's fantastic. Um, but, but they've been around for a while. They're a little over a decade in Vermont. Um, and I'm a big fan and every beer they make is incredibly high quality and delicious. So I try to drink it whenever I can. Is, uh, is Lawson, uh, the name of the owner? Is it the name of the town? 
Yep. So Lawson, the Lawson Brewery, so Lawson's Finest Liquids, which is the name of the brewery, is owned by Sean and Karen Lawson of Vermont. Okay. Yep. Ingenious naming right there. It is. Yeah. A good, Shout good. out to the Lawsons. Exactly. Shout out. Uh, I am drinking Sugar Waters Mimosa. Added. I'm really curious about this one. We were talking about this beer next door last night because you checked it in the other day. This we we had. This is what we had when we were there. We uh, did. I, I don't know if you had. I don't know if I. I don't think I had that. Yeah, and they said they were finally releasing it. So it's a brute pilsner and a New England IPA blended together with tangerines. Uh, we had it when we were there. We did the interview with them. Had it on draft, and it was it was amazing. Um, I almost. Lost it in my pants. That's how good it was. Uh, out of the can, <laughs> it's good. Not nearly as good as it was there, though. But it is still good. So it's, I like it. Tasty shit. Okay, Jake, do you want to start the interview now? Like you already tried to start, and then Chad rudely interrupted you. <laughs> rudely. Well, you know. Jake from State Farm. I just wanted to sort of list off the qualities of our, our guests. You know, like well, okay, she already went somebody. through how tall he is. Got that part, and the same part. So that's that's seventy five percent of it. In fact, we actually I actually didn't get to pick Chris's uh, brain on sandwich sandwich expertise, which that's a we can get to that in a minute. That's a topic I am passionate about. But um, (laughs) before we do that, uh, I honestly, Chris, I don't know a ton about the beer enthusiasts. Adam turned me on to this. I've been uh, Brucey. I did this a million times. I think I wrote on YouTube. And left it there for a while. That was the beerenthusiast.com. And then I went to like, I'm going to check him out. Blah blah blah. Nope, that's not him. And I was like, brew enthusiast. Damn it. Yeah, brew, brew enthusiast, not beer. Yep. Did I say beer? You said you beer. said beer. Yep. Oh shit. Yep. All right. Sending people a different. Hold website. on. I got. I got a drink for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh damn. We got. Yeah, we got to come up with some sort of drinking game while we're on the podcast. When... Yeah, but then everybody will just make the mistake so they can drink. I mean, with you guys, it's. But I, you know, and I was on here. I don't really understand what I'm doing. Are you a consultant? That's <laughs> not. That's not, not a shock for anybody. I don't know what I'm yeah, doing. I'm, yeah. So if you want, I can. I can kind of kick it off if you want. Just a little background here on what's Please. going on. Yeah, definitely. That would be fantastic. Jake out. He's in Chris McClellan's <laughs> life. So, um, so currently, just just to give you a little uh, a little more context, I guess. Um, so I live. I live in New York City. I'm in Brooklyn right now. Um. And I currently and have for the past four years in my day job, I work for the Guinness Brewery here in the U.S. So I work as a senior ambassador for Guinness. Um, I helped to start a marketing and education program for Guinness here in the U.S. Um, and I have for the past four years. So um, my current job is, is to teach people about beer, teach our internal sales teams and distributors across the country about how to sell beer, how to approach that conversation with retailers, and then working with retailers and consumers on bigger events and things like that so that people can learn a little bit more about Guinness and hopefully just a little bit more about beer in general. So um, I have a very small team. We work with our sales teams and everybody else out there, but that's essentially in a nutshell, my, my current sort of day to day, what I, what I work on. So man, I did not know you worked for Guinness. Now that just brings up a whole other line. So, of I know oh, yeah, for, there's, for lots, sure. <laughs> there's lots to dig into there for sure. And then um, on top of that, about Seven years ago now, I started this website, which has gone through numerous iterations. Um, it's actually, I'm glad that we're talking right now. It, the Brew Enthusiast as it stands is like kind of in shambles just because it's got a bunch of like different things that are going on in, in my life that I'm trying to launch, uh, which includes, uh, you, there's a portion on there on the site that you're probably looking at, Jake, that says the draft shop. 
um, which is trying yeah. to be this kind of resource for people to find uh, draft beer line cleaning services and just learn a little bit more about basically best practices around retail standards, which is something I talk about on a daily basis in my work. Um, and so that's that's a tool that I've done that I built um, that is slowly being built. Um, and other than that, this was and still is a very much a storytelling platform and blog, right? So the Brew Enthusiast has always been kind of my voice. Um, I've got lots of different posts that exist on there. Mostly these are because I work in marketing and because I always have in beer. Um, these are mostly slanted toward strategy items in beer, um, right? So you can see top four posts right there, including, you know, why would you ever launch a beer nationally? Stuff like draft lines, you know, basic things like that. And I used to be a lot better about blogging. I'm trying to be better about it again because um, I really do like writing. But I've got this site as just kind of like a brand home for myself. Um, it, it, it's a slowly evolving kind of beast, if you will. Um, but there's a lot of good content on there. And then um, I actually took off all the interviews that I've done, but I've done over 100 interviews with different breweries around the country. Oh, um, wow. To, yeah, just to, just to kind of hear their story, because I think storytelling is one of the most powerful things, powerful things you can do as a brewery. Um, there are so many good stories out there. The reason you buy the beer you buy is probably because you appreciate something about the story. So um, it just kind of all, you know, piles into the same exact thing that I do right now at Guinness and, and sort of every, everywhere else, all the other stuff I've done in the beer world. So I've kind of had my hand in a bunch of stuff, but um, the site is is ongoing and I'm active on social media and I do as much as I can in the meantime to, uh, to stay in the craft world, which is really where, what I grew up with in Vermont. I, I absolutely was on here and I was at the draft shop and I was like looking up Illinois and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> what am I looking for? <laughs> if I put it in lines in my house, because I will. Yeah, yeah you should. <laughs> you should. Um, and I'm going to get this question out of the way about Guinness. Number one, all right. I, I, we can talk about Guinness, guys, because everyone has a million Guinness questions, too. Well, so. I, I never, ever, ever liked Guinness. I, I only have one Guinness question. Guinness. <laughs> Where do I get another pint? <laughs> Until I went to Ireland. I went to Dublin. I went to Dublin for work. Yep. Uh, been there a couple of times. Chad went along one time. And even before Chad came with me one time, I told him, you got to try the Guinness there. Like, no, nah, Guinness isn't that good. I'm like, you have to try it there. Mm -hmm. And it's different there than when you get it here. And even one time on my trip, I came back. I mean, I, I when I was there, I was there for a week, and I drank Guinness like it was water. That's all yep. I. I landed, went straight to the liquor store, got Guinness, brought home, got got into the kitchen, cracked it open, drank it. I was like, nope, not the same, not the same. Mm -hmm. Why why is there such a drastic difference? So part part of the myth. So there's no beer I think on earth. I think I can confidently make this claim that has more <laughs> myths surrounding it. Sure. Um, than Guinness, right? Because it's really, it's really, it's special, right? It's special to a lot of people that 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 drink it on a daily basis. It's been around a long time. This is 260 years this year that the brewery has been around. Um, that is amazing. <laughs> it is amazing, and they've been making beer the entire time, which is kind of crazy. Um, so Guinness, uh, I'll, what I'll do is I'll cut to the chase, and then I'll kind of walk it back really quick. So the number one myth about Guinness in the United States is that Guinness tastes better in Ireland, right? And what I'll tell you is that um, I literally just ran a training today at one of our uh, one of our top retailers in New York City, and I, I talked about this exact same thing today. Uh, the myth around Guinness tasting better in Ireland it kind of stems from three things. One is that beer is an incredibly experiential thing, right? So mm -hmm. if you're drinking three sheep, like whatever it is that you're drinking, right? The time and the place and the moment that you're in contributes very heavily, right, to your feelings about the beer, right? So if you are at the brewery 
drinking a beer, any beer, right? If you're in Milwaukee and you're For sure. Lakeshore, right? Or you're here in New York and you drink something at some great local brewery or you're at a pub and you have a very special moment with somebody and you remember what beer you're drinking, right? That halo that surrounds the experience of drinking the beer, right? Can't be, you know, understated. So that's the first thing that I'll say is that the moments that you drink Guinness in Ireland, it's a very special moment for most people, right? And that can't be discounted. The second thing I'll say is that retail best practices, which kind of dovetails into the draft shop uh, kind of solution that I'm trying to provide a little bit, um, kind of half-baked at the moment, is the fact that if you do everything perfectly, right? If you treat your lines correctly, if you pour your beer correctly, correctly, if you clean your glassware correctly, if you have the perfect gas mix for Guinness, if you do a two-part pour, right? If you clean everything, you know, if you do all, if you hit all the marks, right? So pouring a perfect pint of Guinness, um, I can confidently tell you, and it's my job to be a know-it-all about Guinness, but I can confidently tell you that it does not taste any different than it does in Ireland, right? But if you couple the fact that retail best practices are certainly different glassware correctly, if you have, what's that? Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say that the retail best practices um, of most retailers here in the U.S. is very different than it is in Ireland. First of all, and second of all, um, you know they've had a long time of, of implementing these best practices, right? And so the, the consistency of the pint, the fact that you can go to every pub there and get the same perfect pint is good, but there are many pints as an example here in New York City that I would pin up against any pint in Dublin and I would tell you it's the exact same thing, right? So the, all of those things being said, what I can tell you is that empirically it's no different, right? The beer is no different. It's all brewed at St. James's Gate. All the beer that you get here in the US, all the traditional stouts that we have available are all brewed in Ireland. They're all brewed in the exact same brewery that you can get the beer from Dublin in, right? Um, but all of those other, you know, sort of that halo that we talked about around the brand um, and around the experience that you have is very much there. So it's a huge myth. Um, certainly there are places that pour much better pints if they if they are serious about pouring good beer. Um, but at the end of the day, it shouldn't taste any different if you do it properly. And, and what's funny is everybody, well, all the guys that I know in Ireland know what places pour the best pints. Like when we go out at night, like, no, we can't go there. They don't, they don't pour a good pint. Yep. <laughs> you know. well, if you're not getting it on tap, do you recommend bottle, can, some of the other? I would always recommend a, a can of Guinness. So we have a four pack of, if you're talking about, so we have a bunch of, obviously the Guinness brewery makes a ton of different beers, right? But right. if you're talking about draft stout, which is like yep. a beer that you're talking about, Correct. Uh, the four packs of cans are the best delivery mechanism at home because um, as long as those are cold when you pour them, right? Crack it open, one smooth pour, right? Into preferably some sort of nice, tulip glass of some kind, right? So that it really helps to form the head properly. Um, a shaker pint is really the worst thing that ever happened to beer in general because shaker pints are just not good for beer. Um, they don't really do it very many favors in terms of the aroma, in terms of the, the, the visual appearance of the beer. So um, that being said, as long as you pour it out in one smooth pour at home, um, the can is really good because the can has our patented widget technology inside of it, which allows you to activate the nitrogen properly. So it should give you a really good pour at home. You All right. are blowing my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> they, pay, they pay me the big bucks to do this on a daily basis. You know? You're good. At, he's good. He's good. I, you know? I, I think that there's there's probably another myth swirling around here. And what you just said is, is the fact that it, Guinness in a bottle, if you can't get it on draft, Guinness in a, in a bottle has kind of been the, the go-to. 
and the the can having the widget in it makes sense. Obviously, I mean, a lot of nitro beers have the widget have a widget, not I don't know the widget. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the same piece of technology basically everywhere. Yeah, but it, you always hear if you if you can't get it on draft, get it in the bottle. Right. That's I mean that's what I always hear anyway, and, that, and that's the part that's blowing my mind because yeah, I've always bought it Guinness bottles. So for the both ways. Have you? Yeah. Well, that's whew. all right. Now we know. Now, now I want to drink Guinness. Do you have any? I'm going to go get some cans tomorrow. <laughs> I don't think I do. <laughs> I think I'm all out of it. Yeah. I do have some uh, hard seltzer down there if you want some of that, buddy. You know. <laughs> <laughs> when is Guinness going to do a hard <laughs> seltzer? Are we going to talk about White Claw for the next 45 minutes? Is that our? Uh, <laughs> yeah, our we're a Henry's or podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we might as well be. Jeez. <laughs> the way well. The way they're exploding. It's way. Yeah, we don't want to talk about that. Crap. We need to talk. Well, I it, there is some some beer related news I think is fairly important. I don't, I don't want to interrupt the interview. Too late, but, you've already done it. Okay, well then uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it up, but I, but I, I'm gonna bring it up because I'm I'm curious what Chris thinks of this. So, uh, overflow. Damn it. AB InBev just made a acquisition. They yeah. went after Platform Beer. Which was supposedly, you know, a very strong up and comer. I myself have not had platform beer. <coughs> um, this Where, where's platform from? I, isn't this Ohio or something? You're the one reading it. Central uh, Ohio, yep. Yeah. Ohio City. Yeah. And uh, just a couple interesting notes. One, this is the largest sort of craft beer purchase in the states since Wicked Weed uh, in 2017. Which I like the name. I don't think that was received well. I don't know how that's been doing since. I don't know. Um, I certainly don't see it in stores around here. But anyways, there's been a lot of speculation about why uh, Embev was so interested in acquiring Platform. And you know they haven't come out and said why that I'm aware of, but I've seen numerous articles talk about uh, Platform's ability to make the seltzer. And really? how that might be one of their faster inroads into that sort of exploding space. Um, anyways, uh, Chris, thoughts? Have, have you seen this? Have you thought about this story at all? I have many thoughts. Do you guys? So I, I actually do a daily newsletter with the Brew Enthusiast, which is quickly becoming sort of a, a main a mainstay with the brand. So I signed up for that. So I'll be get the, the email, the one through email. Yep. Yep. So it's just right. five, five stories every day. So that was. Perfect. It's actually featured today, and I kind of reserved my my now. There's a bit of analysis that comes along with every story to help people discern what's actually going on in the story. Because sometimes it's just like there's too much information, you know. Um, I, you know, this is the twelfth purchase from ABI, right? And when we look at their strategy in the U.S., and we we think to the, to yourself like they don't have the ability to grow a craft brand or create a craft brand, right? That's not in their DNA. There's no way they can do it. So they obviously started purchasing breweries, right? So they purchased Blue Point and Goose Island back in the day. And then, you know, up to this point now purchasing platform, I'll be honest, it, that kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't expect that to happen. But they have so much money, right? Like they have so much cash, they make over half, the, literally over half the beer in the US, right? That is consumed is, is made by ABI. So it can't be understated how much leverage they have, right? How much capability they have. And so if I'm an entrepreneur has successfully grown a business for a number of years, and then somebody comes to me with a buyout offer that's 10x my revenue stream, right? The first thing I would think is I've earned this, right? That would be the first absolutely. thing. That, that I think that's absolutely fair. Yeah, totally. So that's that's the first probably that, that's the first piece of the puzzle here, right? The sec the second is 
Um, ABI, because ABI can't grow its own craft brands because it doesn't know how, and it literally wouldn't work, right? So they had a geographic, um, you know, issue, right, with the, with the Great Lakes region in the Midwest because they have Goose Island and the Chicago region, which kind of, you know, speaks to the whole country. That's a that's a 50 state distribution footprint for them. Um, but in terms of a local or a regional brand that they can kind of hang their hat on as a good revenue stream in the coming years, um, you can bet that they did their research, right? You can bet that they definitely looked at the potential growth of something like Platform and the repercussions of them owning it, right? So you saw that they announced it. You know, I was looking through the Facebook comments, thousands of people saying, I'm done with Platform. I'm not going to drink it anymore because it's not independent beer, right? But with access to AB's distribution network, with access to their revenue stream, right? With access to a bunch of things that only they can provide, um, I don't see that being an unsuccessful purchase for them, right? So you know, it, 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 if you're, you know, hell bent on only drinking independent craft beer, um, and I completely admire that, you know, I'm, I don't have too many fond feelings for, 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 you know, any huge beer company that has made as many kind of sus, suspect moves as ABI, right? I, I have nothing against them. Um, but that's kind of what's going on here, right? So now they have a player basically in every single market, right? So they have Elysian, they have Golden Road, Right in California, they have a legion in the Pacific Northwest. They have four peaks in Arizona. Right, I could just keep going. You could just dot the eyes across the country. So now they basically have national coverage with regional brands positioned to grow in those areas. So I think that's probably what's going on. But do we? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I I, di I didn't overlay their breweries with a map when I was reading these articles. But when we had read the book by uh, Josh Noel and we had done our own research on this topic in the past, I mean, clearly part of the strategy was having that the regional presence uh, in all areas of the United States. That being said, I, I wasn't you know necessarily sure off the top of my head if they had coverage and if that was a main driver. So I was just wondering beyond that. And I've, as I've said, I've seen some articles allude to that they they were also producing the Salt, the hard seltzer, is that what we're calling it? That's, that's what it's called. I mean, not what we so, call it, what it is called. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, my guess, too, is they'll probably start doing some production at the facilities they already have. To... Do they have a hard seltzer? I mean, Miller has one. Bon and Viv. ABI makes Bon and Viv, which well, is right third most popular seltzer in the country right now after White Claw and Truly. So they, they make quite a bit of it. Yeah. 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 Who makes the Henry's? Henry's hard soda is made by Miller's, I think. Miller, okay. Miller, of course, not Miller. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. Does uh, does Guinness? I, I would hope the answer is no. Have any interest in getting into this market? So uh, you're aware of Black so, Law. Well, so the, so the, Guinness, <laughs> the Guinness brand uh, has will never make a uh, will never ever. I'll I don't make those decisions, but I can pretty much guarantee they'll never ever make a seltzer. Um, but remember that Guinness is owned by Diageo, right? So Diageo, mm -hmm. which, is, which is the world's largest spirits company, it's really kind of interesting because they are the world's largest spirits company that just happens to own one brewery, right? Um, and the history of that is actually pretty cool. But that aside for a second, um, they also own, Diageo also owns Smirnoff Ice, right? So, and everything that Smirnoff Ice produces, which is flavored malt beverages, right? They also have a very popular line of spiked seltzers that they've had for the past year as well. So under that brand, which sits under Diageo, they do have that. But Guinness will probably never, ever do any of that stuff. They'll just continue to make beer. 
the way they should. But so you're saying their business daddy's not going to come to them and say, "Hey, make it," because one, they know that from an identity perspective, they're not really interested in two. They've already got that product going. So correct. Yeah, they've already got that revenue. You don't need them to do it. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that's that's already there. But yeah, they'll they'll never do that under Guinness. That's good right, to hear. So, All right, we've kind of diverged what we normally <laughs> talk about, but well, I mean, it, it's beer, so it's whatever. So we don't talk about. But I want to get back to you, Chris. How how did you get started in this? What what's your background? How did you you know go the path of Cicerone? Sure. All that goes. So tell us about yourself, Chris. Tell us tell us who you are. Who are you? <laughs> Why are Where you did you come from? from? Why are you six foot seven? What are you doing on this podcast? I'm sure you're already asking yourself. Why are you so tall? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm so tall because my father is six foot ten. Oh oh my god! That's that's why I'm so tall. I can answer that one pretty easily. How tall is your mom? Uh, She's five. Five eight. eight. So she's not sure, but she brought you down a little bit, probably. (laughs) Brought me down. So my, I have a, uh, I have a almost a six month old son now, and. Um, he's sleeping right now, but I, I four, wake right? him up. I he's want to see how tall four. he is. I, I basically told my wife, I said, look, if he doesn't get to six, four, that'll be it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> our lines are done. I'm, five years. I'm just going to cut him off. Yeah. So my, my son's 13 is already taller than me. I'm six feet. So, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So I, I, a little background, I guess I, I grew up in the, and like I said before, the great, the great state of Vermont, um, just outside of Burlington, Vermont. Uh, have you guys been to Vermont before? I have no. never been. I, I have been there. I have uh, my aunt and uncle live in New Hampshire, and they just built a house in Vermont. There you go. Oh so, yeah, I've I've been out there several times. All right. So okay, anyway, go ahead. The guy from Wisconsin. All right, that's what I like to hear. So <laughs> I've been to Wisconsin many times, and I love it. So um, yeah, so I, I grew up there, and and I did all sorts of fun stuff. And actually, during college, my first foray into uh, into my friend David is right here as well. What's what's going on, David? You, you need a beer? Hi, David. I was thinking about more beer. Yeah, drink another beer, man. There's <laughs> more beer. beer. Uh, and so I um, actually worked at a beer distributor, Vermont's largest beer distributor, during college. So I, I smoked too much weed and ate too much pizza during during the school year. Right. That sounds amazing. Um, and so then I got really fat, and then I uh, would burn it off because I'd be delivering kegs for four months in the middle of summer. And so. Great work. That's a good plan. You know? It was a great plan. I'd come back every every uh, the beginning of every semester, and my friends would just wonder what the hell I did um, for the summer. And so, <laughs> it was actually a, it was a good strategic move for me. But then leaving leaving school um, and leaving undergrad, I went and my first job was actually at Magic Cat Brewing Company, and you guys probably know right. Magic Cat pretty well. Yep. Uh, so Magic Cat is from my hometown in South Burlington, Vermont. And um, I got a chance to work for them for a couple of years. Um, I worked in sales and marketing in Southern New England. So I covered a big swath of territory and we did all sorts of events and obviously responsible for the sales of our beers um, in that area. And um, then I got laid off. I have a history of being laid off. So if you guys need any advice on how to get laid off, I'm I'm very good at it. Um, But (laughs) I got laid off and then I packed my car and sold all my stuff, packed my little Jetta and moved to Washington DC without a job or a place to live. Um, did some couch surfing. And then uh, for the next six years, I actually lived in DC. So um, I worked at a startup. I did, I sort of developed this really cool digital skill set, which I've been able to leverage in the beer world over the past five or six years. Um, and so teaching myself all manner of 
you know, digital best practices, including project management and web design and, and basic coding and emails and all that kind of stuff. Why so, DC? What made you go to DC? I had a bunch of friends in DC. I needed to get out of Vermont, you know, yeah. close to the world. Um, and so I got a chance to do that. And DC is just such a fun city, especially if you're a, a young lad. Um, and we had a great time and then uh, eventually started long distance dating my now wife. And, and then a, f a few years later, we, we moved in together in New York. She's from here. So, um, and then I've been here now six years or so. So um, been hanging out and uh, about four and a half years ago, I got actually invited to go to Ireland from Guinness. So they, they shot me an email. Um, I was, I was writing a lot. So I still do a lot of writing and I was writing for like men's health and men's journal and a bunch of different magazines on beer. They saw this. And so they invited me over to Ireland for a week. I had an amazing time, you know, like they just rolled out the red carpet. I had, I had never had such a magical time in Ireland and I've been to Ireland many times. Um, and got a chance to, uh, talk to them a little bit more. And then they said, Hey, we're actually starting, we're trying to start this educational program here, uh, for Guinness in the U S do you want to, do you want to help us out? And so I got a chance to uh, kind of scope out what they were looking for and, and started working for them and built this kind of help to start build this national team of ambassadors, all of whom are at least certified Cicero or above. And people are just, they're just passionate, kind of very beer focused, you know, beer nerds at the end of the day, just like me. And um, we've been doing that for the past, yeah, about four years or so. Mm -hmm. So it's been really good. Chris, did you know they were recruiting you? Did they know they were recruiting you? Were they didn't know. No, I mean they knew they they knew they were getting a writer to go over, right? So they uh -huh. knew they were getting somebody who would potentially write nice things about them, which is you know how those press trips work. That's called a junket, right? When somebody sends you over to do something, right, with the idea that you might write nice things about them. So mm -hmm. um, big companies do that all the time, um, and it was really it was lovely. I mean they did a great job, and then when they came back, they realized that I actually had all this expertise in beer and and this experience doing all these things. And so they, they started chatting with me and it just kind of worked out. So when you fly to Ireland, what seat do you buy? <laughs> as many as I can, you know, <laughs> expense. Um, but no, it's, you know, the interesting part about the beer world these days is um, I've never been deeper, right? Like I've never been more involved, both for all the things I do with my site. Um, I worked uh, basically as an independent consultant before I worked for Guinness. So my time just before, uh, Guinness here in New York. I worked with small to mid-sized breweries on brand strategy, digital best practices, um, and just things that most small to mid-sized breweries, A, don't have the time for or the expertise in, and B, don't focus on the way they should um, to make sure that they can actually find the audience that they're trying to reach and sell as much beer as they can. So um, I got a chance to do that. It was really fun, um, and I learned a lot. And the beer world these days is the most complex, amazing place I've ever seen, right? We're, we're almost at 8,000 breweries and, um, you know, podcasts like yours and, and all these other podcasts that have popped up give people a voice, you know, in, in the modern kind of beer world. And and luckily, regardless of what all the headlines say, I'm still very bullish on great beer. You know, I, I think it's we, we do we do live in, in an age where there's just so much good stuff out there. So I'm pretty happy about it. Yeah. What are they saying? Everybody has a brewery. 10 minutes away from them or one or two, something like that right now. I think like nine, I think, I think the, the stat maybe is there's a, I think about 90% of the U S population is within 10 miles of a brewery. Yeah. It's so, which is pretty amazing to think about. I mean, I, just as an example, I, I live in a neighborhood called Carroll gardens, which is here in Brooklyn. And just since I've moved here in the past year, 
two breweries have opened, three more are about to open, right? And there's going to be 45 breweries in New York City alone, right? So, and that's just New York City, you know, to think about, which is crazy because that that's still way under indexes compared to a place like Chicago, um, which has 150 something, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's still a ton more. So a lot of runway out there as long as you're uh, you're willing to stay relatively small. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Let me let me put you. Uh, you got a question, Adam? No, no. I would never interrupt you, sir. Never. Okay. I would never. <laughs> Chris, let me put you on. Anyway, this, on this. <laughs> let me put you on the spot here. Sure. Put your cicerone. Put your advanced cicerone hat on before you finish that beer. Can you give me a description of that beer that you're drinking, as a, as an advanced cicerone certified? Sure. Sure. Beer drinker. Okay. Sure. So you want to get full nerd on this beer? Is that what we're trying yeah. to do? Yeah, yeah. Full nerd right here. Oh okay. yeah. All right. So normally, if we're if you're going to do a full judgment on a beer, right? If you want, you you would do a blind judgment, right? So I wouldn't be presenting the information ahead of time, right? So okay. the first thing uh, that that will obviously slant your opinion on what you should be drinking, but um, you would evaluate. So the Cicerone program obviously has four levels to it. So each level gets exponentially harder than the previous level, right? So as you go through the levels and take the exams. Um, you're sort of ideally you've hit the books, you've done your research, you've, you've got a certain level of experience, um, and you're able to take, take that next step. So all beer evaluations go the same way, right? So you talk about appearance, right? You talk about aroma, you talk about flavor and you talk about mouthfeel. So, um, I have a, over on this side of the, uh, the screen, I've got a huge tray of, uh, different beer glasses that I like to use depending on the type of beer that I'm drinking. Um, but this Scrag Mountain Pills, um, you know, so if we just look at appearance alone, right, this has a beautiful light golden color. I'd say the standard reference method is probably between three and four at max, right? It's not quite straw, but it is slightly darker than that, right? It does have some nice regi- residual lacing on it, right? But it is also very clear, right? So this is clearly a filtered lagered beer. Um, aroma on this is, I haven't actually ever done it with this beer, so... Aroma on this is like, it's slightly crackery. It's also very floral. So this is a, this strikes me as a more traditional Czech pills, right? A Czech pills should have those kind of saucer type German style hops um, or some Czech hops, right? And they should be very perfumey, right? American hops are, are often very tropical. They're very dank, juicy. Those are words that we use, right? European hops are a little bit different, right? So that's something I'm getting there. I also get like a little bit of sulfur on this, but sulfur is just a typical kind of off, off shoot or sort of byproduct of a lot of lagers, right? So that's something that happens. Mouthfeel is lovely. It's it's bubbly, but not too harsh. Um, it is very, very dry. So the finish is very quick, right? It doesn't cloy at all. There's not too many residual sugars. Um, it is crackery, right? It tastes like you just ate kind of like finished up a, a uh, like a water cracker kind of thing. Um, which is is what the malt really should do. Pilsner malt and pale malts, it should be a showcase of those types of things. Um, And then the mouthfeel, like I said, is really, really nice. And there's actually a little bit of a, there's almost like a little bit of a lemony character in there, you know, and I'm not sure if that's coming from the type of hops that are used or if I'm just getting that because I've been swirling it for a while or it's been out for 15 or 20 minutes. But that would be my initial Cicerone level evaluation of this beer. That, that's awesome. That's I mean, I could listen to so, that all day. I know that that was that's incredible. I, I can't even. I, when I drink a beer, I'm like, uh, tastes like uh, orange. Hops in yeah, I mean, <laughs> the hardest the hardest part about Cicerone, frankly, guys, is the 
Um, everybody has a good palate, just like everybody has a good ear, right? Like people, people are like, oh, he's tone deaf. Like nobody is tone deaf, right? Like you, you can hear things, right? But the ability, the, the key is the ability to, and I'm honestly still not very good at it, but the key is the ability to match that thing that you know is a flavor to a word, right? And so if you can find out what that is, right, and bring those two things together, right, in a sentence, that's really the vocabulary that training for things like this gives you, right? So what it does is I could say crackery as a malt characteristic, right? And then you go, it is crackery, you're right, right? But you knew that already, like you already tasted that, right? You, you just couldn't put it together, yeah. You just didn't put one and one, right? So the key to those types of things is you just, you have to be very proactive, right? You have a very good palate, right? You know what you're tasting, but you just have to think about it more often than you used to, right? So. It, it's all there. You just you're able to label it basically. Now, when did you? You're, so you're advanced this from, which is the third level. So the next level would be masters, so which is the highest level. Correct. Yeah. Um, now, first, is there you have any desire to go for master? Is that in the plans or? It's in the plans. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna um, I'm threatening. I'm internally threatening to do it right now. Uh, <laughs> it, and if you if you do it, you're like there's like. 10, less than 10, right? Or something. I can't remember what they're worth. Or they're, less than 20. I don't know. There's probably less than 20. Yeah. Less yeah. Than 20, yeah. yeah. Um, there's about a hundred and I actually don't know the answer to this. I think there's like a hundred and some, like 115 advanced drones. Yeah. Yep. Uh, like you're right. And then there's like probably 3,500 or 4,000 certified Cicerones. And there's probably hundred something thousand certified beer servers, which is the first step. So each level definitely kind of, you know, people people drop out as their right. interest their interest in hitting those books, you know, slows down a little bit. So what made you start the Cicerone program? Was it just your interest in beer or was it a job that wanted you to get the beer or what or when did you get the Guinness, Guinness has been very supportive and they actually um, help pay for my time for, for me to be able to actually sit down and, and hit the books. And um, I'll say this about Cicerone in general. I think that there are many, I think most of the beer professionals that I look to in the world as mentors and people that I really like know way more than I do about beer, right? They're just not, they haven't gone out of their way to take the exam, right? But what I do like about the Cicerone exam and, and the Cicerone program in general, I know a lot of the folks that are there and they're A, very passionate about beer, right? They just really, really appreciate everything about beer. And the second thing is that it does give you at least a baseline level you know, to talk to other people about, to say, look, this guy has, or this girl, this person has tried and they have in fact gotten to a point where they're able to show this knowledge in a certain way, you know? So my interest in the Cicerone program, there's a small part of me because I'm a, I'm a, uh, I love a good challenge and I never turn down a good challenge. So there's a small part of me that just wants to do it just to say I did it. Right. I think everybody could probably honestly admit that. But most of it probably just stems from it gives me a very good framework to continue to um, advance my knowledge and, and know as much as I can about this subject. I just think it's incredibly interesting. How long before, how quickly did you go from, you know, beer server to certified Cicerone to advance? How much time are we talking between, between each one? I took, uh, I'd have to probably look. And my profile on the website to like figure that one out. It's been a while. Uh, I probably it's it was a number of years. I mean, between those those and each level, like I said, each level is noticeably harder than the previous level, right? Mm -hmm. So certified Cicerone is a lot harder than certified beer server. 
advanced Cicerone is a lot harder than certified Cicerone. And then master Cicerone is like insanely difficult. So. <laughs> and master Cicerone is what? It's three or four days? Or two, two or three days? Two, it's two days, but the problem, I think it's two days is the exam, but it's only held once a year in Chicago at the Cicerone office in Chicago. And uh, it's just, it's very difficult because it just takes all, everything you've learned could potentially be tested. Right. First of all. And then second of all, it's just essay questions and then practicals. So practicals, meaning they could spike your, your beer with one of 30 off flavors. Right. And then you'd, oh, have, wow. you'd have to be able to like pull, pull out the off flavor out of the beer. Right. So Crazy. it's that level of like of nuance that you have to be able to do. Um, I'm not nearly there. Um, it's, you know, most people don't pass. Most people don't pass advanced Cicerone either. Right. So I guess I got lucky, but, um, it's just it, it's it's a good framework for just getting yourself really dug deep, you know, into into the business. Does Master have a? I know Advanced Cicerone has a, a tasting challenge or whatever exam, right? Does Master have it too? Master Cicerone has uh, about half the exam is a practical exam, right? So the uh, Advanced Cicerone exam takes the entire day. It's a full day exam, morning to night, and there's about six, uh, basically, evaluation periods for, for tasting beer, right? So you have to, like, identify beer styles, identify off flavors, um, say whether you would serve a beer, do all these other things. And there's basically six tasting portions throughout the day. So there's lots of tasting with the advanced system. Yeah. Is there any room for error, Chris? Is this, like, you have to be perfect, is it like, 90%? Like, how? The pass rate is... Um, I, or not the pass rate, the pass score, I think, is an 80. So you have to get an 8 or above to pass. Yeah, yeah. I've been talking about doing Cicerone for a couple of years now. And it's funny, my wife said, who you guys have it on tonight? And I told her you and said, what, you know, your advanced Cicerone. And, of course, I brought up the subject. So when are you doing it? <laughs> <laughs> Most people say that. I'll, I'll say this, right? It's not it, It's not intimidating, right? It's actually a really fun process because you you – there's a set number of things I can send you guys all the reference material you need, actually. And then um, I put together study guides for lots of people. It's really fun to get into it because you start reading through things and then you start connecting dots. Um, and it's just it's just a very interesting exercise. Right. And if you if you commit now, the key, just like a marathon, right, is you have to find a date and commit to it. Right. So go to the website. This is what I found. Anyways, go to the website, find a date six months from now, buy it. Right, pay for it, <laughs> and then and then you're in, right? So then yeah. you have to study. So. I, I, might, I might take you up on that because uh, my wife will not stop bugging me now that she found that I was thought yeah. about doing. Happy to help. <laughs> oh, that's very. I mean, your description of that beer was was amazing. I mean, we've I I I don't remember was David Nilsson working on advanced level when we had him on. He was certified. He was certified, but he wasn't advanced. He's working on it. So to hear you discuss you know, just your description of that of that beer is, uh, you know, it's almost encouraging to try and and work on some of this stuff because, like I said, I, I try to describe a beer and it's like I, I can't just like you said I can't get the words out of my mouth. I know what I'm tasting, but I can't really put it together what what actually is is coming through to me. So I mean, I, I, it's really cool to hear you say that. It's Talk really hard. It. That's the hardest part. Like that's, that's don't beat yourself up about it. I mean, that's, that's the hardest part about this whole thing is yeah. what you just described. So 
to say that anybody would think that's easy is is a uh, you can walk behind me. You can. <laughs> He's really tall too. Yeah. You, you don't have to have clothes on. We don't care. Nothing. <laughs> But to say, but to say that that's, I mean, that's, don't beat yourself up about that kind of stuff because it's, it's really difficult to figure that stuff out, you know? Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the beer industry. Why don't we, um, we've already talked about how, you know, it's growing and I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I don't really see that slowing down. I mean, it has slowed down some, but I don't think, you know, people have kind of, I've speculated the, the gloom and doom of, of, of craft beer for a very long time. Um, yeah. I mean, ever since we've been doing this podcast, everybody's always said, well, craft beer is on a, uh, it's going to plateau. Yeah. I think when we started this well, podcast, it's really a question we asked, right, Chad? Like, do you think we can get to 8,000, 10,000? Well, well we, what's the number, right? I mean, like when we started, we were at 6,500. Now we're into, into our third eight. season and we're approaching 8,000. So Chris, that's why I like this article, the golden age of beer. On the one hand, it makes me really sort of excited. Um, mm-hmm. I think that shit. I mean, we're living in this time of just exceptional choice options. You know, breweries access. Um, but what I like about this article is you start talking about really the beer industry and some of the points that you make here. Uh, you talk about consumers drinking less beer. You talk about craft beer having a bit of identity issue. Um, you also talk about how beer is still not great at sort of speaking to, telling stories, identifying branding with minorities and women. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when you take this, the full context of this article, it's kind of like it's not all, you know, great. Um, it, it's great for us, I guess, in the moment right now. But but will that will that trend last? Uh, and I think the, the the thing on top of all of this is you know, how much impact will big beer have on the beer that we like as they continue to do anything and everything they can to control as much of whatever market is there. Um, and, and probably still going to be a shrinking market. You know, I mean, I don't think we're going to start considering seltzer as part of craft beer. Right. So, I don't know. so <laughs> you know, and, and, and we keep hearing that, you know, there's a push by people younger than us that, uh, you know, they, they're not as interested in, in consuming alcoholic well, the, products. Yeah, yeah, but the problem is they haven't experienced life. Once you start experiencing life, you want to drink the fuck out of it because I, life. <laughs> I don't disagree with that, but, you know, legislation changes. You know, maybe maybe when people are looking for that escape, maybe um, it's not beer. And will, and will that have an impact on us as we maybe. age in terms of oh, maybe, you know, will we go from the golden age to a recession? <laughs> I think there's so it's a it's a it's a really good question to ask, right? That's kind of the gnarly question that people like to ask right now when we look at um, the juxtaposition of of craft beer to macro beer to consumer trends and a lot of the stuff that I highlighted in that article. Um, but I, the way I look at it is is I, I've got basically three markers, right? So the first thing I think about is, in general, people are not regressing in their taste preferences. And the reason I say that is because if I give you or get you acclimated to a really good beer, right? So let's say it's this Pilsner, right? So this Lawson's Pilsner is essentially the same style as Budweiser, right? Or Bud Light, something like that, right? In terms of it being a Pilsner. But at the end of the day, there is a distinct flavor difference between those two beers, right? So people who get acclimated to better products when they get themselves tuned up 
to something that tastes a little bit better, that has more going on, right? Very rarely do consumers regress, right? They don't go, you know what? I'm done with that flavorful stuff. I'm going to go back to, to, to my adjunct light lager, right? They don't eschew it completely, right? There's always a time and a place for, you know, a good beer like that. And I, I have nothing against that. But that's the first thing that I'll say. The second thing that I'll say about that specifically is that I think that while the number of beers net is shrinking, right? When I look at the entire pie, right? Most of that shrinkage, if you will, nobody likes shrinkage, right? But no, shrinkage is bad. Yeah, that's not yeah, good. Cold. Do women know about shrinkage? Anyways, not, trust me, they do. Yeah, it's really not good. But uh, the 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 shrinkage in the pie um, really comes predominantly from that category, right? When you look at who's drinking and how much they're drinking, right? So that's the second thing that I'll say. And then the final thing I'll say, in just specifically in regards to whether you know big breweries are going to infringe on small breweries turf is that um they have incredible economies of scale right like it, it costs lawson's right it costs budweiser i mean roughly speaking and i i'm just making this up but i think this is probably true about a 25th of the amount of money it costs them to make the exact same liquid volume amount of beer right mm -hmm. so that can't be discounted when you actually look at the economies of scale and how cheap and easy it is and how much access to market they have. So there's a lot of those things going on. All that being said, all those factors at play, right? There, the you know, Jake, you mentioned the legislative environment that's changing very much. Um, it's kind of my focus these days looking at the legislative environment because I think that there's actually a lot of, um, I think there's actually like a ton of huge just you know, anachronistic laws that have been on the books for a long time. Um, hello, my wife just walked in, guys. You can say hi here. Hello, wife. Hello. Hello, wifey. <laughs> um, but I think that there's a lot of beer laws on the books right now that are preventing people from actually getting access to the beers that they would otherwise really enjoy, right? So I think that regardless of whether you're a domestic drinker or just a local craft drinker, um, a lot of these laws are just old school and they should they should go away. And I think that, you know, as as the years progress, they're slowly fading away. Yeah. Um, you know, Texas finally just allowed to go beer sales from their breweries. You know, breweries could not sell beer to go. Oh, yeah. Breweries until just just recently. Right? Yeah. Actually, we're very well. Yeah, we, we have a good friend in Texas law. that yeah. uh, the first time we went down there and visited a brewery and Tops. tried to take one. Nope, can't take one. We're like, what the hell? Like, you can't take a yeah. beer to go. Yeah, and so there's all of those factors. And so when I say that we're in the golden age of beer in that particular article that you referenced, um, all of those factors are at play. But the good thing is, is that people really like beer, right? People go to breweries consistently. People talk about beer. We're on a beer podcast right now, right? There are so many occasions for drinking good beer. And what I don't like to hear is that oh, beer is shrinking and people don't drink as much and the young people don't drink as much. And it's like, no, they're more selective with their drinking occasions. And yes, they do consume less alcohol, right. Than than we probably did or, or do, but um, that's a choice that they're making. It doesn't mean that they care about it less. They're just choosing to spend their dollars in different ways. And so my, my perspective on beer is bullish insofar as that I really like um, the idea of, people exploring beer styles and exploring new beers and things like that. And if you use that, you know, idea as the barometer, then the beer market has never been better, you know? But do you think that that might mean that uh, as we move forward and as sort of the younger people of age continue to grow up, that um, 
we may have to shed some breweries that are not meeting, you know, not quite reaching a, a good enough audience, haven't branded themselves enough, or, or quite honestly, don't aren't producing enough quality to, you know, maintain. Like, are we going to perhaps settle more on six thousand? So if you if if you look at this from if you ask an economist that exact same question, they'll give you a very interesting answer, right? So if you ask an economist what's going to happen to the beer business, right, in the next five or ten years, right, they'll tell they'll talk to you about fragmentation, they'll talk to you about hyperlocal consumption, they'll talk to you about all the basically prevailing headwinds and tailwinds that exist out there, right? But when you ask an economist what a healthy market looks like, right, where where you know what is healthy, what is the definition of a healthy market? They'll tell you that a healthy market means that a lot of businesses are entering and a lot of businesses are exiting at the exact same time, right? What that means is the, the perfect, uh, you know, analog here would be the restaurant industry, right? So the restaurant industry is, you know, people love going out to eat now more than they ever have before, right? That's that's you can look at the stats; people love it, right? They order takeout all the time. They love going to restaurants. It's huge, but. When you look at the number of chain restaurants that are closing and how fast they're closing, if you just use that as your barometer, right, as as your marker, then you'd say, look, people don't like going out to eat as much, right? But that just that just means things are changing, right? It doesn't mean people like going don't like going out to eat anymore. And so, in the beer business, as the number of breweries grow, because I think we're going to get to ten thousand, right? And so. Uh, as the number of breweries grow, right, you're going to see more close, right, because you have more opening, right, and so people get into it for the wrong reasons. They see stars in their eyes. They forget that it's in fact a business that they have to run, right? So they have to be making money, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of factors at play, right? And so I think personally that we're not going to necessarily go down to six thousand. I don't think there's going to be a huge crash. I think the demand that exists out there for these breweries is sustainable. It's it's real. The cash flow is good, right, for these guys for the most part. And so as long as they stick to what they're good at, continue to make good products, and slowly expand their reach, um, I'm like I said, I'm very bullish on 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 growth. I think the thing that's difficult though um, for people in the market now, you know let's call them smaller to mid-sized breweries and, and somebody that's looking to start a brewery is the distribution um you know when these guys these guys really are the ones that turn me on to you know craft beer let's call it when i got turned on to that i, I was sort of under the impression well you know when I awoke, you know, it was like the Matrix. Like I, so I was plugged into just so domestic beer. I wasn't, I wasn't awake. And you're right. Yeah, we, we totally pulled you out of the Coors era. When, once you go, yeah, I was in like a little Coors pod, Coors just, latte, just floating in Coors beer, and I just, I didn't know. Um, and you're right. I mean, once you go forward, I, I, I can't go back. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that at all. But can't take the blue. I thought on. we would have more access to to different breweries, and I thought there. And I thought that we lived in the place being north of Chicago here that we would have said access. And and my experience has been it's still, from a distribution standpoint, a, a very regional experience until you get to, um, you know, it doesn't have to be embedded, but it but like a founders or, or something like that that has the ability to produce and to and to reach far. Uh, and so I, you know, for for me it's almost frustrating because I we talk to so many people and uh, we have so much fun with people that we meet. And I, I can't get the beers they're drinking without setting up some sort of, you know, trade with them. Um, it's just it's just not available. And, and, and who were we talking to, Adam, that said, you know, you look at these distributors and, and they want to be loyal to who they're 
they're serving now in their states. You know, they, they don't, you know, if they're going to make room on their truck for somebody new, that, that's somebody they're kicking out. And it's not necessarily. No, Central, Central Waters said that. Yeah. Yep. Not necessarily a big beer person they're kicking out, but it's it's somebody that's getting kicked out. And, and maybe it is somebody that's local that's part of that community. Um, so, I, you know, to me, that is sort of the challenge for, for anybody that's trying to grow or, or somebody that's trying to enter. Um, I think that there's um, that's it, that's another great point to bring up in, in terms of access to market. So, you know, if I if you asked me what the formula was to selling beer, right, I tell you a good product for a great price available where I buy my goods. Right. So that's how I sell my beer. Right. That's how you sell beer. And so if I can't get one of those pieces of the, the formula, right, the other two are very difficult to get to, 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 to sort of jive with. Right. To, to sync up with. Um, now I could take the, if I would play the devil's advocate here just for a second, Jake, just, just to, uh, Please, no, go. just to kind of open it up. Um, I am, I am very vocal about my dislike of franchise laws and just the distribution system. I think distributor con consolidation, which I could go on for hours about, um, is a huge detriment to us as beer drinkers in this, in this business. Absolutely. Um, but if I was, um, well, it's like state law, Chris, like there's some States where you can buy the distribution. Yep. Like, yeah. Well, well, there's there's a lot of different laws across a lot of different state lines, right? And so you have to. It's just it's just a web of nonsense out there. Yeah. But if I was a distributor on the north, like anywhere in you know north of Chicago, right, and I went to wherever you know whatever grocery store, right? Not not even Binnie's, right? So like like let's let's not use the epic beer stores for a second. <laughs> right? Let's just use your typical you know grocery store, right? And I just stuffed the entire beer aisle full of of as much craft beer as i can get my hands on from whoever would would sell it to me right that would be a very very short road to failure for both the distributor and for the the um for the grocery store right because unfortunately and fortunately right what we forget is that for you it would be great if you had better access to those products right but you have to remember that most people are either ambivalent or ignorant right to the idea of craft beer, right? 85% of the of beer consumed in this country is still adjunct light lager, right? And so the money makers, whether you realize it or not, for these, these breweries or for these distributors and for um, these retailers out there, most of it still sits right in those categories. And so I agree with you, access to market is, is, a, is a hugely relevant issue, but when you look at all the constituents within that ecosystem, right? And you say to yourself, what's best for each one of those constituents? Um, very quickly, you know, you, you start to realize that it is actually about the big breweries, right? It's all about that light lager. And so you have to be a little more, um, all of us have, I think, have to be a little more pragmatic about um, what our preferences are and what the market is dictating, you know? And so that's really where that comes from. And so luckily there are stores that specialize in this and give you those access points, right? I, I would love, you know, that's why the binnies of the world exist, right? Because not only will they sell you the, literally sell you a $13, 30 pack of Coors Light, right? But they'll also sell you the best central waters you just had and they'll sell you the new revolution, whatever. And the, you know, like all the great local breweries that are available because they have the ability to do that, right? So, you know, the, the market will kind of dictate itself when it comes to those types of things. But overall, to your point, I think that access to market is a huge issue because the business model of a distributor is inherently just 
a bit of margin on a bit of, on a case of beer, right? And so distributors ostensibly don't really care which case of beer it is, right? They just want to sell you a case of beer, right? If it's a more expensive case of beer, they make a better margin, right? But they don't really sell a lot of it, right? So they they make a lower margin on Budweiser, but they sell one billion times more Budweiser, right? So that's the cash cow for them, you know. So there's there's a lot of factors at play um, for those parts of the distribution system, you know. So I think there's it's it's a good point to bring up, but there's just so many small things going on. I think the thing that's frustrated me, and we were talking, I think it was massive beer reviews. Massive beer reviews, yeah. You know, we were sort of touching on this big beer versus small beer, and I I think I had this sort of romantic idea that everybody just needed to wait to be unplugged to just wake up and Ma- massive kind of made the point that like there's a lot of people that don't want to be unplugged no. they're, they're fine there's not, and yeah. and to me i was like well shit but it's so much there's so much better beer <laughs> and and i guess i just hope that more people um value that cost and, and even if they drink less beer but just drink better beer um but you know, I guess each, to each their own. You know, I, I don't want to put people down for drinking what they like. I mean, drink drink what you want to drink. But. No, that's that definitely not something you want to do, right? Like, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and, and like we said at the beginning of this, I'm very happy about the availability of good local beer because I think what it does is it's slow. It's a slow burn, right? Um, and it takes a long time because people don't just transform their preferences overnight. Um, but the the fact that we've gone from you know five percent of the market to fifteen percent of the market in twenty years, when you look at the craft beer market, that's a lot of beer, right? That's hundreds of millions of, of barrels of beer. I mean, that's so much beer, right? That um, that isn't necessarily a genericized light lager, whether it's an importer or, or, or a, you know or domestic produced product. So it will get there. I I think that we in in you know some nearish point in the future, we will see a you know, a place where um, people are drinking all sorts of alcoholic products, including really good beer. And it's mostly going to be really good beer, right? But it, it's going to take us a little time to get there. Now, when we talk about people who aren't into craft beer, right, they only drink their, their lattes, <laughs> what, what would you, what do you think is the, the key to, to moving them over? You know, would you present them with a craft lager? Or craft pilsner first. Like, what? What do you think is like a way to, or like a, a yeah, something sessionable? Maybe one of these lower, lower ABVs. Maybe one of these beers where now they're putting the, you know, it's still craft, but they got calories on there. And <laughs> I mean, they're doing that now. Yeah. I mean, it's happening. Yeah. So when I, whenever somebody, I, I still as much as I can, I go to beer festivals and 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 you know, when I'm working for for Guinness in an official capacity, and I and I rep, and we talk about Guinness and. Um, the number of people who walk up to me and say, I don't drink Guinness. What are the reasons people don't drink Guinness? Right. What do they say? Right. It's too heavy. Right. It's too thick. I don't like stout, whatever, you know, you can go right. on and on and on. Right. 16 ounces weighs 16 ounces or 12 ounces. Right. It's not <laughs> any heavier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But they say all these things and it has illuminated a very basic truth, but something that, that I've kind of taken to the bank, which is, you know, if I can provide a little bit of context to you, right? I have pretty much a 100% conversion rate for people at festivals who tell me that, right? Because as soon as you tell me that, I'm all over you, right? Because <laughs> what I do is I say, look, I bet you I can get you to like Guinness Draft right now, right? And they go, no chance. And then they always do, right? Because 
it just takes a little bit of context, right? It takes a little bit of information for somebody to actually, for the light bulb to switch on, right? And that's true about everything, right? That's true about food and drink and experiences and choose your choose your whatever, right? I've I've never been axe throwing, but once you've gone axe throwing, it's the best thing you've ever done. And you want to keep <laughs> going axe throwing, right? But um, if it's not on your radar initially, it's hard to get it on your radar. So the, the big challenge is just putting it on your radar initially. So, um, you know, when you teach people and give them, I, the key is always education, right? The key is, is giving them a little more context to what's going on. Um, give them a little more information about what you do, why you produce the products that you produce and why it's important. And um, like I said, it's a slow burn, but that's really the, that's really the sustainable path forward, you know, because it creates advocates and then it creates, you know, it gives people the ability to um, sort of discover who you are and, and continue to explore. There's a, I've got firsthand experience with this. Um, and, and Jake and Adam know this, this guy, Trent Snyder, who owns Bridge Up Brewing up in Sturgeon Bay in Door County in Wisconsin. And he will take, um, he'll go up to the bar and watch somebody order a Bud Light, Budweiser, whatever. Watch him drink it, and then they'll go up to him and say, hey, you know, I'm, I noticed you're drinking that. Why don't you try, can I offer you a taste of our uh, Zwickel lager? That's what he calls it. Yep. And he'll present it to him, And the, it's, it's amazing to watch, and I just, I was up there last week, to watch a beer drinker sit at the bar, drink his Bud Light or whatever, and then try a craft beer that's brewed right there at, at that restaurant called Sonny's. And to watch them taste the beer, look at Trent, the brewer, and say, that's really good. I'll think, I'll, I'll, give me one of those. I'll have, I'll have one, of your, one of your beers right here, right now. And Trent brews six barrels. He's got a six barrel brewery. It's, it's, it's tiny. Literally in a closet. Like it's yeah. funny watching him brew, but it's so small. It, but it's, it's awesome to watch that actually watch it actually happen in real time where somebody will try his beer and say, Oh wow. Well, you've kind of opened my eyes to what, you know, what else is out there and craft beer is, is as good or better than what I'm, what I'm currently drinking. And it's, it's all about advocacy and, and going out and, and meeting, a beer drinker, especially on that, I mean, super local level. He doesn't distribute. It's it's only available right there at that at that particular place. And but to watch someone drink that and say, "Oh wow, the, I'm, I've never tried this before," and now I'm going to go forward and maybe I'll expand my horizons a little bit. The next place I go, because that, that place is very touristy. It's, it's a lot of vacationers, and they like go home. And then they'll go find their local brewery and and say, I tried this this type of beer at this little tiny brewery up in Wisconsin, and let me try yours. And it's it's kind of a, a really neat thing to see. It's great. It's it's that's been the discovery process, I think, for most people. And I and I've I've you know uh, I've seen that exact same thing happen probably hundreds of times at this point. You know, whether it's um, with a beer I know intimately, like Guinness, or or a beer that um, is close to my heart. You know, something that I grew up with, but. Um, it's amazing to see that that discovery process, and and you know all of the other market factors aside for a second. Um, when push comes to shove, there is no amount of clever experiential lifestyle marketing that can possibly compete with one person talking to another person, saying this is why I brewed the beer, or this is why I drink this beer. You should try this beer too, right? That's the most powerful, you know, moment there. So. And that's, yeah. that's that's something you can't get. 
from the big, you know, the Budweiser's and the Millers. You you can't, and that's why I think that's why I love craft so much. It's it, like we've all said before. It's the story, you know. It's the the person behind the beer. I can walk into a brewery and nine times out of ten I can talk to the brewmaster or even the owner. They're there, you know. You can't get that. And um, yeah, I mean, Trent Trent's a great example. He'll he'll go out there and just sit with everybody else while everybody's drinking and talk with everybody. It's 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 pretty cool to see. It's good to hear that the brewer likes to come out and talk to people. A lot of brewers don't like to do that. They yeah, it's honestly, it's, it's yeah. one of his favorite things. I mean, he yeah. he absolutely loves. He calls himself a brewer for the people yeah. in in Door County, Wisconsin, and it's you know the feedback that he gets from someone that says, yeah, I mean, it's good. Maybe I don't like it. Maybe we should try, maybe I could try this or try that or, I, you know, whatever the taste is, he's getting that feedback and saying, all right, well, maybe I'll try something else next time. And he's brewing on such a small scale that he can take that feedback and adjust it and pretty much and, immediately and pretty much immediately yeah. and, and present it again. And, you know, gets, get somebody to say, oh, well, that's no, that really is good. You know, so. Yeah. Speaking of Trent and Bridge Up, in September, we're actually going up there and going to be brewing with him. Yes. Um, a beer and hops brew. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. He's He's been amazing. So, um, if, I was a, if, I was a if I was a distributor these days, I would be, uh, I mean, I, I feel like I'd be a little money. bit, huh? <laughs> Making no money because you just. Yeah, I'd be a little bit worried because, oh. because of the, 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 the hyper local, um, uh, industry of the craft beers become and distributorship is not as important as it used to be. I mean, they're still going to have the, you know, the, distribute the, the big guys. Of course they have to be able to deliver that everywhere because it's still the majority of what people drink, but you're, you're taking a, uh, a beer that's brewed at, you know, it's brewed right here. I can drink it right now. Uh, and I, you know, it's something special when you, when you go there and drink it, I'm not really going to worry about not getting it at home. I'm just, I know I'm going to, when I go back there next time, I'm going to have that beer cause it's so good, you know, having it right there. Yeah. Beer, beer distributors in general. Um, so the national, the NBWA, which is the national beer wholesalers association, um, is actually an incredibly powerful lobby in DC, right? They have, they have a lot of influence over um, the legislative agenda and sort of priorities that exist out there, right? That is a fact. That is not my conjecture. That is just true. Okay. So that's the first thing I'll say. And then um, on that topic of, you know, if I was a distributor, I actually wrote a probably my most trafficked article uh, of the past couple of years on the brew enthusiast called Mounting Pressure, which is an article that I wrote about the beer distribution and the pressures that are basically being exerted onto the industry um, and the middle tier. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there are multiple, um, multiple different, you know, layers of pressure that are being applied um, to the middle tier. And, and the most relevant is obviously just the changing beer laws, right? Texas and the to-go beer law, right? Like these, these little bites at the apple are continuing to take away volume from distributors and, and the business model of the distributor is obviously just selling cases of beer. So um, they they need to become a little, I think they need to, you know, in, in general, become a little bit more relevant 
um, and become a little bit more proactive about the way that they go to market and the, the way that they offer value to the people that they do business with, right? So specifically their retailers, right? Because it is still a good model, right? Big breweries, if you get to a certain size, it doesn't make sense for the most part for you to be both a brewery and a distributor, right? Distribution is a completely separate business, right? It's it's dirty and it requires trucks and logistics and all this other stuff that you that is not within your set of core competencies as a brewery, right? A brewery makes beer and they're very good at that. And in some states, it's against the law. Once you get to a certain barrelage, you have to go to the three-tier distribution. Almost, almost every state. Yeah. You know, almost every state. That's true. Once you hit a certain threshold, you have to go with a beer distributor because the beer distributor, and remember, that's a direct result of powerful lobbying efforts at the state and national level, right? Yeah. That's where that comes from. Right. Because otherwise, if you just let market forces go and didn't require somebody to use a distributor at any volume level. Right. Um, that would be very different. Right. So the, the reason beer distributors were put into place post prohibition. Right. Was to prevent unfair competition. Right. But at this point in the market. Right. It's kind of a ridiculous law that's in place. Right. And I'm just trying to be as objective as possible when I say that. Um, but there's there's certainly a lot of forces. But I, I think that the middle tier of our industry, right? The invisible middle tier. Most consumers don't even know what a beer distributor is. Um, are going, they're going to continue to experience challenges and they're going to continue to consolidate, right? So um, the consolidation factor is certainly not good for, for the, your average beer drinker either. Yeah. Speaking of consolidation, what do you, what's your thought on um, craft beer? You know, consolidating, you know, we, we already saw um, Dogfish Head and um, Boston Brewing. You know, those are probably the two biggest ones yep. that I can think of that that joined forces. I guess you would say. Um, is that you think that's something we're going to be seeing a lot of or more happening? These medium to large breweries kind of joining together to become one giant brewery type of thing, or is that just an anomaly? No, it's it's you know the. <laughs> The problem is, is that everybody, a lot of breweries, you know, that, that you're specifically referring to invested a lot and, and took on a lot of debt at the wrong time. Right. So there are a lot of breweries out there that have um, notes that are being called by the bank. Right. And they're investors. And so they need that cash flow. They need that money coming in. And so whatever way that they can figure out to find more efficiencies in their business model um, and more, more specifically, just make a little bit more, more money they're going to, right? Call a spade a spade, Boston beer bought Dogfish Head. That's exactly what that deal was, yeah, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, no matter how they spin it, that's exactly Yeah, no, so the, it was an equity deal, it was a stock deal, call it what you want, right? Sam Calgione made a bunch of money and Boston beer bought that brand. So the idea is, in that case, that makes a ton of sense, right? Because Boston Beer has a lot of cash because most of their revenue stream actually comes from not beer at this point, right? But they don't really have anything resembling strong beer brand, right? But I mean, Sam Adams is floundering. They are they are hemorrhaging equity across the country, right? But what uh, Dogfish has is they're kind of cash poor, but they have tons of equity and a growing brand and, and sequence and a lot of their other IPAs. And so that is a marriage made in heaven. And that makes a ton of sense to me. The the kind of collective that you're talking about too, I think that you're referencing, right? So like Victory Brewing Company and Southern Tier coming together. Um, you've got Canarchy, which is, you know, which is like Oscar Blues and a bunch of the, and, and Parent and a bunch of those other breweries coming together under one kind of legal umbrella, right? Yeah. Um, it makes a ton of sense. I, I actually think it's, I applaud that effort because I think that when you look at the, 
the efficiencies that they can save by combining, you know, administrative resources and combining, um, you know, point of sale resources and all the other stuff that individual breweries had to do by themselves. I think it makes a ton of sense, you know, very much like beer distributors to a certain extent, right? There are efficiencies to be gained as things get bigger. And so um, I applaud those efforts. I, I think they're great. I don't think it ruins the beer in any way. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. I think a lot of brewers will just choose not to go that path just simply based on, you know, some sort of level of stigma that they don't want to really address. Um, but for the ones that have done it properly, they've been quite successful. I mean, Canarchy, ABV, and a lot of those, brewery, those uh, brewing collectives are up this year, right? They're making more money than they ever have before. So Yeah. No, we're running. I mean, we're going what hour and twenty. So I want to be respectful of your time, especially East Coast here. But I, I we, we've got to talk about IBUs. <laughs> <laughs> we we have said. I think it was way back. I think it was season one where we did the uh, Pliny the Elder, which is like what a hundred IBUs or whatever. Yeah. And then we tried another beer. I don't even remember which one it was. That was too hearted. That was like was it too hard? Smells too hard. Yeah. Was it too, yeah, it was too hard. And when you compare those, what what's too hard at IBUs? I don't even remember. It was like 60. It? No, it's the it's, it's same. I think they're both 100. It's the same. All right. uh, That's why we compared them. Is that why we did it? Anyway. No. <laughs> anyway, we tried them and we're like, one's completely different than the other. Bitterness factor. The bitterness right. factor is like, so then ever since then, Jake, of course, is the IBUs don't matter. And that's why we have a picture of Well, him let me just clarify I don't need to clarify. I'm not saying they don't matter in terms of consistency of producing a, a beer. I'm saying they don't matter in terms of how they are marketed and how people think of them. Um, that has been my sort of contention for a couple of years now or something. And it, yeah. and it frustrates me when, especially when you have somebody that's a novice beer drinker and, and they're, you know, they see something like that. They're like, oh, well, this is going to be way too bitter for me. It's like, well, let's try it. We, we don't know that. Um, so that's been my frustration, really. Well, yeah, it's, which was, it, but they put it on cans, they put it on bottles, and it's it's, it's really up to the brewmaster, though. It's just so misleading. Well, the prime example is my wife, who forever she would never drink an IPU. She would have to start with a Coors Light, Miller Light, and then the IPAs were her second beer, and she would always look at. But once she learned what IBU stood for, it was bitterness. She would always look at the IBO and I can't like, oh, that's that's too many. I can't drink that. And then I sat her down and I gave her two beers with the same IBU, had her drink them, and she was blown away by how one was completely not bitter at all, one was more bitter, and now she drinks pretty much well, anything you put in front of her. And that's the other thing they associate, you know. My wife said again, people. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> IBUs, high IBUs with IPAs. You know, they're like thinking of some, I don't know, bitter West Coast or whatever they think, but they think that's all IPAs. It's like, that's, that's not. <laughs> There's so many. I mean, I don't even think IPA is a category anymore. I mean, it's. <laughs> it is a category. It's I mean, a it is. One. But, um, but before, before, Chris, I asked you about your article yep. and on it. I did put a poll out the other day. I don't know why I did this. I answered. We've been, we've been talking, I know you did. Um, <laughs> we've been talking about this uh, for Evs, but I did put, um, do IBUs really matter? And so you know, it was just a simple yes or no. Yep. Well, actually it was yep or no. Oh, okay. Um, yep, or, yep or no. <laughs> simple <laughs> yep or no. I actually like that more than yes or no. Yeah. Like, yep, <laughs> no. Um, and we got 127 votes, which I was surprised by, um, <laughs> but 68% said nope. 32% said, yep. And, you know, we had some people saying, well, yes, it does matter if this or if that. We had some people 
you know, saying, well, it matters, you know, for me because if it's – one guy said it was too high IBUs, it upsets the stomach. I don't know. Um, <laughs> what What is your take on IBUs? Do we need them on the bottle? Is it important? And according way, to Google, you are the expert. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. We yeah. Google, Google says. So, um, you know, IBUs – when, when when you look at IBUs, the history of IBUs, why they exist, right? IBUs are used as uh, historically two things. It's, 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 it's a very important measurement, right? At the brewery level for both quality control and consistency of product, right? So when you talk about IBUs, right? That is when that metric is important, okay? Because it gives breweries, right? A metric, something to measure um, that allows them to put out a very consistent product, right? It's something that it's one of the marks that they can hit, right? To make sure that the, the beer they're producing is, is, you know, up to spec, right? So, so when they're brewing, they're looking at the IBUs to make sure that this batch is consistent or the same as the last batch. Is that what you're saying? I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, bring, we'll, we'll pick on Guinness again here just for a second, because it's sure. a perfect example of this. Okay. Guinness makes, roughly 3 million pints of Guinness draft every single day at St. James's Gate. Okay. Damn. So they make a lot of beer, right? Making a lot of beer consistently is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. All right. To make, you know, the malt, the the free amino nitrogen content of the malt changes a little bit, you know, from batch to batch. And the, the availability of the, the hops that we use changes from batch to batch. And the water can change because it rained a lot for the past month. And that can, you know, that can, that can affect the, the mineral calcium carbonate content of the water, right? There's a million factors that go into it. Right. So as breweries scale and as their products get more popular, right, it's important that the products stay high quality and stay consistent. Right. Because otherwise you miss the expectation with the consumer. And then the next time they go to have a Bell's Too Hearted and it doesn't taste like Bell's Too Hearted. Right. It's a very off putting experience. And then they don't buy it again. Right. So in terms of the brewing science, in terms of the application right, of these measurements, um, it's very, very important. But the thing is, is that people got the idea that IBUs were an important consumer facing piece of um, piece of information. And this is when you lose it, right? This is when you kind of lose the argument because whilst IBUs are a generally good or generally indicative of the bitterness level, right? They're measuring an empirical thing, right? You can measure the number of, of, of isomerized alpha acids and, and other polyphenols and proteins that make up right? The bitterness measurement of an IBU, you can measure those in the beer, right? So an IBU is an empirical measurement, right? It's not a subjective measurement. It's not how soft is this shirt, right? It's actually how many bittering chemicals or how many bittering compounds are available in the beer, right? So when you tell somebody that there is 100, right? Parts per million, right? Of iso alpha acids inside the beer, right? That's a pretty myopic bit of information to get as a beer drinker, right? That's not really very relevant to your experience drinking beer. Right. right? But the problem is, is that those two, the, the idea of, and this gets into the idea of perceived bitterness versus measured bitterness, right? So perceived bitterness is what you actually taste, right? The, how bitter something actually tastes to you, right? Regardless of what the science says, regardless of, of what the IBU count says, right? The example I like to give, just because this is the most pertinent, Right. I think I reference in that article, I'm not looking at it, but I think I reference Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, right? And Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, I think, has something like 38 IBUs, right? If you were to use a descriptor to describe Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, I would probably use bitter as one of the descriptors, right? So, yeah. yes. 
Uh, bitter would be a good example. Not overly bitter, but bitter is a, is a primary attribute of that beer, right? If you were to drink Guinness Draft, right, and have a pint of Guinness, would either of you use the word bitter typically, do you think, to describe the beer? I would not. No. You no. Know, yeah, no. no. So that's where we lose the IBU thing completely because Guinness Draft has an IBU count of 45. Okay, Sierra Nevada has an IBU count of 38. So empirically, Guinness Draft is more bitter than Sierra Nevada, right? But it doesn't taste more bitter, right? right. Yeah. So the thing about bitterness is it's about the balance of ingredients in the beer, right? So something can have more bittering compounds but taste less bitter because there's more other stuff to balance it, right? Namely hops and the sugar and the proteins inside of, uh, inside of malt, right? So the malt is, is the balancing component, the sweet malt and the bitter hops, those two things come together in harmony in the beer. And so when you start using IBUs as an indicator of some sort of subjective measurement of enjoyment with the beer, you, you really do start to lose people pretty quickly, right? So it doesn't matter how many IBUs are inside of a beer, right? It just matters what it tastes like. And so when you start telling people a random number of IBUs, right, the uneducated palate and specifically an uneducated drinker Right, we'll look at that and go, oh, I don't like that. That's too many IBUs, right? So if I started plastering 45 IBUs all over Guinness Draft, right, that might be really off-putting to a lot of people who'd be like, well, I don't like bitter beer. And you're like, well, have you ever had this? Like, it, this, it's really good. You should try it, right? And so it's one of those examples of just like a piece of just irrelevant uh, information that does not need to be sitting on any label ever because it's not relevant to the drinking experience in any way, I guess is my point. <laughs> Finally, expert people. That's an expert. <laughs> right. Saying what I've been saying for years. Chris, do you have a favorite style of beer right now that um, just at this moment you're reaching for, you're, you're stocking, you're going for, like you see one in the store that you haven't tried, but it's that style. You're like, hey, well, I'm going to grab this. I am just crushing as many delicious tasty, tasty pilsners as I can get my hands on at this exact moment uh, because it's August and I want delicious, tasty, perfect pilsners. But I had a pint of Guinness earlier today. It was great. I had an IPA yesterday. It was great. I had an alt beer the day before that was fantastic. I've had a goes this week. So I guess I'm all over the map. So maybe the uh, the answer is no, I don't have a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, Chad, which I don't know, he dropped on where he went, but um Chad and I have been on this mission over the past, I don't know, six months or so to try and find a craft lager and or a pilsner that is as consistent as like the big guys, right? That is as close as possible on price. Yeah. Which is, you know, you're not, your craft is not going to meet the price point of, of, you know, a Bud, a Bud Light or whatever. And uh, I think the closest we've gotten so far is, like the lakefront lager, you know, it's pretty good. I like the slightly mighty, slightly mighty. So it's, um, you know, because for us, that's how we, we can give to people, you know, that we know that are, are not into craft. Like, I speak so Midwest lagers. I've been jamming on Bell's Lager of the Lakes right now for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. That's, good. that's a fantastic beer. I really, I love the, uh, I love the character of that beer. You know, I, th I think it has just a really, really nice round malt profile to it, but it's still incredibly dry. It's nice. I think they're they're all day IPA, or no? That's is that Founders. Founders yeah, all day IPA is like a huge one that everybody seems to be loving. Well, I mean, that is that that literally defines that style category. You know, so 
um, that is everywhere for sure. The, the one, the the style I'm loving is the Brutes. Anything with a Brute, I will buy it and try it. And I love the Brute IPAs. This Brute Pilsner by by Central Waters is is good. I'm loving that. I know it's I know it's not going to stay around long, but I'm going to drink it while it's here. The style I'm loving is anything that's 10 plus a beauty. Right, yeah. Um, He's not so much a style. Chris, a, I can <laughs> sit here and uh, keep picking your brain. I, I have so many more questions about your job that interests me. I, I would love to get your take on maybe NA beers. Um, but I know we're up against the clock. One last thing I just wanted to ask. Yep. Uh, long week. Maybe you've had enough beer. Re- is there something else you reach for that's not beer? Do you have another favorite, another go-to, another type of alcohol or anything really um as, yes. you know. so i drink three liquids on a day on a daily basis so i drink beer i drink water and i drink coffee almost exclusively of my life but <laughs> okay. um the outside of that in the alcohol category um i'm a huge whiskey fan so i drink pro i drink quite a bit of whiskey um and uh i really i really love that too um so i've got a I've got quite a whiskey collection here it's actually the, the most modest it's been in, in years um but um I, I i like exploring and being with people who just really appreciate that you know whatever it is that we're drinking at the moment right so i don't have a lot of expertise in wine um i really like good wine i like drinking good wine with with friends who like drinking good wine and i will do that i rarely buy a bottle of wine right i'm, I'm not really going to get a glass of wine out unless that's what we're doing right so the influence of friends can't really be underestimated in that circumstance. So I'm very influenced by the people around me. So um, if we're drinking gin and tonics, let's do it, you know. Um, but that's that's really what it's all about. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for being on. Uh, you're very knowledgeable. You're very articulate, uh, very personable. I, I really enjoyed this. I thing. just made I just made all that shit up, guys. Like none of that was true. Well, right? yeah. Fake so. it, man. You're killing it. Well, so. we'll edit that part out. Make sure <laughs> so no, but thanks for the invite. It was a pleasure, you know. Yeah, hang out with us here for a little minute. We'll do the outro here. One second. We're the three best friends that anyone could have. We're the three best friends that anyone can have. And we're always gonna hang out. Yeah. We lost them. Well, I'm gonna end the broadcast. Oh. Now we're not live. Chad's power went out. There's a storm.